Hello and welcome to Session 8 of World Sepsis Congress 2021. This session is especially timely discussing long-term sequelae from sepsis and COVID-19. We are joined by six excellent speakers from all over the world, and the session is moderated by our very own Imrana Malik, member of the GSA Executive and one of the program chairs for this Congress. Imrana, over to you. Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, depending on your time zone. I would like to welcome um, our global audience to session number eight, Long-Term Sequelae for, from Sepsis and COVID-19. My name is Imrana Malik. I'm an intensivist working at MD Anderson Cancer Center in Houston, Texas in the United States with uh, an interest in sepsis in cancer patients. I'm also a member of the Executive Committee of the Global Sepsis Alliance and the co-chair of this Congress. Today, I will be your moderator for this session. Um, a few housekeeping items before we get started. Uh, we have six wonderful speakers today, and we'll have time for approximately one to two questions after each talk. Of note, um, the first talk by Dr. Haley Prescott is pre-recorded, so she will not be present to take any questions. However, uh, please feel free to add your questions in the chat. We'll keep an account of them, and we'll forward questions to Dr. Prescott to and then see the best method for reporting her responses back. That being said, it's my privilege to introduce our first speaker. Dr. Prescott is an ICU doctor and researcher at the University of Michigan and Ann Arbor VA Hospital in the United States. Her research focuses on sepsis survivorship. Specifically, she studies how sepsis fits into patients' longitudinal physiologic and chronic disease trajectories and develops tools to reduce post-sepsis morbidity. Dr. Prescott's research has examined healthcare use following sepsis and shown a substantial increase in the proportion of days alive spent in healthcare facilities among sepsis survivors. Um, she has also found that hospitalizations with likely uh, microbiome perturbations predispose patients to subsequent sepsis. Um, many sepsis survivors die following hospital readmissions for infections, suggesting that post-sepsis immune suppression is an enduring problem that contributes to late sepsis-related deaths. Um, taken together, Dr. Prescott's studies have highlighted the role of specific treatable medical conditions in driving post-sepsis morbidity. Let's start with Dr. Prescott's talk, which is titled, From Adults to Elderly Surviving Sepsis But Dying Sooner. Hello, my name is Hallie Prescott. I'm an adult intensivist at the University of Michigan and the Ann Arbor Veteran Affairs Hospital in the United States. Uh, it's my pleasure to be speaking to you today about surviving sepsis but dying sooner. I've listed my disclosures here. I have no financial conflicts of interest. I've listed my grant funding and also relevant roles. And I'm just obliged to tell you that I'll be presenting my views and not views of the US government or the Department of Veteran Affairs. The work that I'll be discussing was really motivated by this study that I led back in 2014 that um, looked at healthcare utilization surrounding a sepsis hospitalization. Uh, this examined a cohort of about 1,100 patients who had survived a sepsis hospitalization, and in this figure here shows the proportion of that cohort who was residing in an inpatient healthcare facility on any given day in the year leading up to sepsis and in the year after discharge. And and then here in black shows the proportion of the cohort um, that had died in this year after sepsis. And so we were really struck by this, this very high rate of mortality in the year after initially surviving a hospitalization for sepsis. And there 
had been a variety of studies really all showing this high rate of mortality, but it was unclear whether this was a result of sepsis itself versus merely a reflection of the type of patients who are at increased risk for developing sepsis, namely older patients or patients with underlying chronic conditions. And there had been this systematic review published in 2016 that had examined these studies and had concluded that there was insufficient epidemiological evidence to confirm a causal relationship between sepsis and subsequent post-acute or late mortality among patients who had survived sepsis hospitalization. And so we sought out to answer this question because we hypothesized that sepsis would indeed, does indeed, increase one's risk for death in the one, two, three years following um, a sepsis event. For this study, um, we used the... Um, uh, U.S. Health and Retirement Study, which is a very large observational cohort study in the U.S., which has been following about 20,000 older Americans from age 50 through the remainder of their life. And we identified patients who had been hospitalized for sepsis, and we um, then matched them to three separate sets of comparators. First, patients who were not in the hospital. Secondly, patients who were hospitalized for a non-sepsis infection. And thirdly, patients who were hospitalized for sterile inflammation. And we selected these different comparators to answer different questions. So first, what is the effect of sepsis, including the effect of merely being ill and in the hospital? And then what is the incremental of of sepsis above and beyond being in the hospital for other similar related causes, such as a non-sepsis infection or a sterile inflammatory cause, which at least at the time in the era of sepsis II definition were thought to be these kind of two key components of sepsis. Um, so here, uh, this um, figure shows the lists of um, different characteristics which we were able to match people on. So because these patients were participants in this large um, uh, observational cohort study and they were um, surveyed periodically about their um, health, we had a lot of really rich information about them. So we were able to ensure that the sepsis patients were sort of indistinguishable from their comparisons on demographics, their prior healthcare utilization, their economic status, their health status, including things like their functional limitations and also their self-rating of health, which is hugely predictive of subsequent mortality, as well as the sort of traditional things we often measure, like their list of chronic conditions. So what did we find? So for the first comparison, sepsis versus patients who weren't at the hospital at that moment, uh, we found that uh, sepsis was associated with a 3.5-fold increase odds of late mortality, specifically deaths in the 31 days to two years following sepsis admission. Uh, which translated into a 22% absolute increase in late mortality. For the next comparison, uh, sepsis versus a non-sepsis infection, we found sepsis was associated with a 1.6-fold increase odds of late mortality, a 10% absolute increase. And then compared to sterile inflammatory conditions, a 2.3-fold increase odds of mortality or a 16% absolute increase. We did a bunch of different subgroup analyses trying to understand were there particular types of patients who were really at increased risk of late mortality after sepsis. And we found that um, 
Uh, there was no difference really across types of infection or age, sex, their self-rating of health prior to sepsis hospitalization, their number of medical comorbidities, their pre-existing functional status, or whether they resided in a nursing home prior to their hospitalization. But we did see that there was a fairly strong association here between how ill they were, specifically the number of acute organ dysfunctions they had during their sepsis hospitalization, and their subsequent late mortality, which tells us that the sicker you are during the sepsis hospitalization, not only the increased risk you have of dying acutely during that hospitalization, but also uh, increased risk of dying after hospitalization among people who do survive. So our main takeaways here were that one in five elderly sepsis survivors had a late death that was due to the lasting effects of sepsis, not explained by their age or pre-existing health status. This translated, or sort of said another way, uh, we found that half of the deaths in the two years after sepsis were unexplained by patients' age or pre-existing health status. A um, key strength of this study was the very detailed information that we had on patients' pre-sepsis health status, um, whereas a key limitation uh, was that our cohort was limited to patients ages 65 years and older. And so while we did not see a difference across age within our study, our entire study was limited to older patients, and so we're less able to uh, assess whether the same um, holds true for younger patients hospitalized with sepsis until uh, this study was published just earlier this year. Um, this study examined adult patients ages 18 years and up, so much broader age range, hospitalized with sepsis across all of Ontario, Canada, and compared them to adults who were hospitalized for other causes, not sepsis, um, but matched by age, sex, socioeconomic status, urban versus rural residents, prior comorbidities, and prior healthcare resource utilization. And here, this table shows the main findings of their study. Um, so here, they each row is the different sort of time periods that they assessed. So they looked acutely the first 30 days, 30 to 180 days, and then all the way out to five years for this cohort. And they found that uh, patients hospitalized with sepsis had an increased risk of uh, mortality. So here this shows the hazard ratio are elevated for patients hospitalized with sepsis versus their comparison. And this remains elevated for the entire duration of the follow-up out to five years. Additionally, uh, presented in their supplement, they completed a subgroup analysis where they examined this association by age. So they divided their um, cohort into patients age less than 65 years, 65 to 84, and then greater than 84 years. And they found that the strength of this association was actually strongest in the younger patients, less than 65, and attenuated in the older patients. So really extends the findings of this prior study to show that this association um, persists across um, adult patients hospitalized with sepsis. So the main findings of these two studies are that patients after sepsis have a heightened risk for mortality, which is not explained by age or pre-existing health status. This association is present across the board, but particularly stronger for younger patients and also stronger for patients who have greater illness severity during their sepsis hospitalization. I highly suspect that the very same thing is true for patients with COVID-related viral sepsis, um, although these studies were both completed using data from before the pandemic.
So what are the implications? Um, I think the key takeaway for me um, is that this data suggests that we can improve longer-term outcomes for patients who survive sepsis by providing better care during and after sepsis. If all of these subsequent deaths were explained by age or pre-existing health issues, um, then we may be less able to move the needle. Um, the fact that most of these deaths are unexplained by pre-existing health status suggests that we may be able to reduce them by better care during and after sepsis. So how can we do that? Um, so here I will close by pointing to you to some other sort of resources. The first is a review article that I wrote with Derek Angus, which was published in JAMA in 2018 called Enhancing Recovery from Sepsis. This was a large systematic review looking at the literature regarding outcomes from sepsis and providing essentially pragmatic recommendations about best practices both during and after sepsis to promote or enhance better recovery. This was then followed up with a study led by Stephanie Taylor called The Association Between Adherence to Recommended Care and Outcomes for Adult Sepsis Survivors. So essentially, they did a chart review for several hundred patients hospitalized with sepsis in a healthcare system in the North Carolina. And they looked specifically to see whether patients were receiving these care practices, which we had recommended in this prior review. And they found that these care practices were indeed strongly associated um, with reduction in rehospitalization and reduction in mortality in the 90 days after sepsis. But only 11% of patients in their cohort got all of these recommended practices. So again, sort of more data suggesting that there is this kind of like opportunity um, for us to enhance recovery for sepsis uh, by better care during and after sepsis hospitalization. Um, so again, I will close there. It's been really a pleasure to speak with you today, uh, and I thank the organizers for an excellent conference. Um, take care. Excellent. Um, we're very happy to have that um, talk by um, Dr. Prescott, and sorry to have missed her uh, being here in person, but um, we'll hopefully be able to get questions over to her, should there be any in the chat. Um, now let's move on. Um, we'll be moving on to our next speaker. I'm happy to introduce Dr. Jerry Zimmerman. He's a professor of pediatrics and anesthesiology and a senior faculty member of the Division of Pediatric Critical Care Medicine at Seattle Children's Hospital and Harborview Medical Center at the University of Washington in Washington, USA. Since uh, 2010, he has served in uh, leadership roles for the Society of Critical Care Medicine and was president for that organization from 2018 through 2019. Dr. Zimmerman has been um, an editorial board member of the Critical Care Medicine and Pediatric Critical Care Medicine since 1993. In 2009, he received the American Academy of Pediatrics Section on Critical Care Distinguished Career Award, and in 2020, the Society of Critical Care Medicine Distinguished Service Award. Dr. Zimmerman was principal investigator for the NIH Life After Pediatric Sepsis Evaluation Labs investigation and is uh, the co-principal uh, investigator for the ongoing NIH interventional trial on stress, sorry, on stress hydrocortisone in pediatric septic shock. Um, Dr. Zimmerman's talk today is titled Informing Pediatric Survivorship with Quality of Life Indicators, where does the data guide us? Welcome, Dr. Zimmerman, to the floor. Well, 
you and uh, greetings uh, to all of you listening uh, from Seattle, Washington. I first should acknowledge uh, support from the uh, National Institutes of Health here in the United States for supporting the LAPS uh, investigation, which I will uh, speak about uh, a little bit later uh, in this uh, talk. Well, we should start with this notion that at least for children, sepsis mortality has really declined substantially in the past uh, several decades, at least in resource-rich countries. Uh, but at the same time, it's interesting that sepsis uh, cases in children uh, have increased. And this largely uh, reflects uh, in resource-rich uh, countries the success of uh, intensive uh, care medicine including uh, rescuing uh, children with uh, uh, septic shock. So in the intensive care unit, uh, we intensivists uh, really focus our efforts on uh, recognition, uh, stabilizing and resolving organ dysfunction. That's basically our job in the intensive care unit. Uh, and we feel pretty good when that organ function, uh, dysfunction, uh, does resolve, the patient survives and can leave uh, the ICU. That's considered a pretty good success. But what I'm going to talk about today is the uh, burden of morbidity that these uh, patients who survive their sepsis carry with them uh, 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 long after they leave the hospital. And one way of describing all of this morbidity uh, is the impact on individual uh, health-related uh, quality of life. So currently, this is sort of the big picture. Uh, mortality at one month for children with uh, septic shock is about 10%. However, among those children uh, uh, who survive, uh, and really nobody has uh, looked at this until recently, about half of those children uh, exhibit a substantial uh, uh, deterioration of their uh, health-related quality of life from baseline. Well, in Seattle, our, our group got interested in this concept of morbidity uh, among survivors of uh, sepsis with this uh, investigation by Dr. Angela uh, Chai, uh, who looked at, uh, in a descriptive study, approximately 7,000 children uh, in the state of Washington. This initial figure uh, uh, displays the risk of readmission after a uh, index case of sepsis uh, and that risk divided uh, as a function of uh, chronic comorbidities, oncologic, non-oncologic, and then uh, previously uh, healthy uh, children. So there is an ongoing risk for uh, readmission to the hospital suggesting something is going on after these children experience uh, sepsis. You dig into her data a little bit more, you find that uh, uh, in this uh, cohort, approximately 7% died in the index admission, another 7% died uh, subsequently. And interestingly, among the survivors, 50% uh, almost had at least one readmission. Uh, uh, the majority of these uh, first uh, readmissions, the vast majority, were either urgent or emergent. And at least to me, 
almost half of these first readmissions involved another infectious disease uh, diagnosis. More recently, uh, Dr. Elizabeth Killian, also from uh, Seattle Children's Hospital, uh, uh, specifically asked the question, when children uh, who were hospitalized with a case of sepsis uh, underwent follow-up, how many of them uh, uh, lingered uh, below their baseline uh, health-related quality of life? And in a cohort of uh, almost 800 children, she uh, identified that almost one quarter of them failed to recover to their baseline quality of life with follow-up. And then in regression analysis, she identified that septic shock, older age, uh, immunodeficiency, and duration of stay in the hospital were all uh, significantly and independently associated with this uh, uh, declination below baseline quality of life uh, at follow-up. So this brings us to the LAPS uh, uh, investigation life after pediatric uh, sepsis evaluation study. Uh, this to date is the largest prospective descriptive cohort investigation that really examined what happens to kids after an episode of septic shock. This uh, study generated a very rich uh, database, uh, but it focused, and for the purposes of this talk, it really focuses on uh, serial longitudinal assessment of health-related quality of life uh, following uh, uh, exposure uh, uh, encounter with uh, septic shock as compared to baseline. So children enrolled in this study really exemplified the complete spectrum of uh, childhood in terms of age. About 45% were uh, uh, female and 17% had some immunodeficiency. In terms of resource uh, utilization, uh, all of these as median values, uh, these children required about nine days in the PICU, 16 days in the hospital. They required about three days of vasoactive inotropic support and eight days of mechanical uh, ventilation. This figure uh, sort of summarizes in terms of absolute scores, uh, the profiles of quality of life, uh, in this case with two different uh, uh, assessment uh, tools, uh, the FS2R utilized for children with severe developmental delay. We could talk a lot about this slide, but the point I want to make is that somewhere between one and three months, uh, uh, as median values, uh, these children sort of approach getting back to their baseline quality of life. This is, these are median values uh, with the black uh, bar. However, I want to point out the large error bars below, which indicate that a large proportion of these children uh, are not back to their baseline, even uh, uh, out as far as uh, one year following the sepsis event. So the other way of looking at this again is this concept of what proportion of children fail to return to their baseline health-related quality of life. And you could utilize many different thresholds to look at this. Uh, 
the minimal clinically significant difference for the PSQL quality of life instrument is four and a half points. So what you see here is the proportion of patients failing to return to their baseline quality of life, either the minimal clinically significant uh, difference, twice that, three times that, or four times that. Uh, and uh, the dotted lines uh, indicate that at one and three months, uh, 50%, and then the three months, 40% of these children uh, persisted below their baseline uh, health-related quality of life. We also uh, looked at the derivation sort of, of a, a composite measure that might be used in future clinical uh, uh, interventional trials for sepsis. And we defined the poor outcome as either death from sepsis or persistent severe deterioration of health-related quality of life, more than 25% below baseline. And this core outcome was noted in 37 and 28% of the cohort uh, at one month uh, and three months, uh, respectively. Uh, in total, <clears throat> looking at what happened to these kids over the year following their septic shock, 13% uh, died. Uh, and among the survivors, even one year uh, following this event, uh, 35% uh, remained below their baseline quality of life. We examined a multitude of variables that uh, these children might encounter during their critical illness. Uh, and with uh, regression analysis, uh, derived this model uh, uh, as uh, one that was clinically meaningful, namely the summation of daily PLOD scores and organ dysfunction uh, score, the summation during ICU stay, the highest vasoactive inotropic score may be uh, reflecting intensity of the septic shock. And then of course, any acute pathologic neurologic sign or event. Each of these <clears throat> was very significantly uh, and independently associated uh, with uh, poor outcome, either death or severe uh, health-related quality of life disability at three months. So the lab study concluded, as I said, that even at 12 months, 35% of children surviving sepsis remained below their baseline health-related quality of life. Uh, at one and three months, 37% and 28% demonstrated this uh, idea of a poor outcome, a death or serious quality of life deterioration. And then variables that quantify magnitude, duration of individual and composite organ dysfunction were independently predictors or associated with poor outcomes following pediatric septic shock. So in our ICUs, we have this technology that allows us to uh, support and ultimately resolve organ dysfunction. And we, we feel pretty good about that when we can do it because typically uh, it's associated with uh, survival. However, uh, that's not necessarily uh, exactly uh, what the family and patient might be looking for. Of course, survival has to happen, but ultimately, uh, all of us would like our patients not only to survive, but actually to uh, thrive. So this uh, idea of a good save in the ICU for septic shock just 
is not good enough anymore because we need to acknowledge that survival alone no longer expresses the complete impact for children in counter sepsis. So the idea of a good save uh, is great. Uh, uh, it focuses us on uh, making uh, that uh, survival from uh, septic uh, shock a reality. But now we need to move on to a new paradigm uh, that intensivists uh, will uh, look for ways uh, or interventions that will also maximize the health-related quality of life among children who survive their septic. Thanks very much for your attention. Excellent. Thank you so much, Dr. Zimmerman. That was very um, intriguing information, especially with such longitudinal data. Um, it's fantastic to be able to, to gather that. Um, one uh, follow-up question regarding the LAPS um, study. Were there any particular organ dysfunctions that were stronger predictors for poor quality of life outcomes, such as respiratory failure versus renal failure? I, I, I think I, I show that in our regression analysis, and as you might expect, and we're, we're not the first to show this, if you have a, some type of a neurologic hit, you see the lead in your head, <clears throat> um, a cardiac arrest, uh, any uh, neurologic insult uh, uh, increases your risk fivefold uh, for poor outcome. Uh, and as I said, uh, that, that's an important but not novel finding. You might expect it. Thank you. Uh, one of the questions from the audience was, um, are there any figures on children who were not admitted to the ICU, maybe had lesser form of sepsis um, in terms of these outcomes? We have uh, the, the last investigation uh, only, um, only examined septic shock. Uh, and so in the United States, uh, at least, uh, those children are uh, typically uh, routinely cared for uh, in, uh, in the intensive care unit. I appreciate that that uh, resource is not available uh, all over the world, unfortunately, uh, but we don't have uh, data for those children. Okay. Thank you so much for your talk. We really appreciate it. And um, we'll move on to our next speaker. I'm happy to introduce um, our next speaker is Dr. Jamie Rylands. He's a reader at the Liverpool School of Tropical Medicine and Welcome Clinical Research Development Fellow. He's based in Malawi and leads the lung health group at the Malawi Liverpool Welcome Research Program in Volunteer. His primary research interest is on the pragmatic clinical management of acute illness in low-income countries and uh, looking at how chronic illness, including HIV and non-communicable diseases, affect clinical management and outcomes. In Malawi, he's examining cardiovascular responses to fluid resuscitation among septic patients, um, adult patients in Malawi, at the microvascular and microvascular levels. Dr. Rylands co-directs the NIHR-funded African Research Collaborative on Sepsis, um, this multinational platform seeks to establish how high-quality care in critically ill um, patients in low-income countries can be delivered. Um, Dr. Rylance's talk today is titled, What Do Long-Term Sequelae of Sepsis Look Like in Low-Middle-Income Countries? And I now welcome Dr. Rylance to the floor. 
Thank you very much for the introduction uh, and many thanks to the organisers for giving me the opportunity to speak. Warm greetings from Malawi, where I work and where I co-direct the ARCS consortium you mentioned. I'm going to present some data from our sub-Saharan African setting, which start to examine the longer term sepsis outcomes. I have no relevant conflicts. I haven't defined the term long term here, but to put, object, uh, to put the outcomes into perspective, I borrowed from an excellent diagram Prescott mentioned from her JAMA review three years ago. Time is represented progressing horizontally from the beginnings of illness on the left and relative health status is shown on the y-axis. Two colour lines are depicted here, which trace theoretical clinical pathways through disease. The solid green line indicates a rapid onset of illness, precipitating admission to hospital for sepsis, and the recovery in the aftermath of discharge is good. This may lead to complete recovery, the top branch, some residual improvement, the middle branch, or late decline and death. The dashed dark green line presents an alternative scenario, a more gradual decline and less impressive recovery. Three longer term scenarios remain, ranging from full recovery through to death. Apart from the index hospital admission, which I've shown with a green shaded area on the left, I should point out the second green bar, which re represents readmission. Coming back to hospital after discharge is relatively frequent in high income countries, and we've heard that. However, this belies a really complex chain of events, starting with illness recognition and the, on behalf of the patient, healthcare seeking, re-engagement with health services and patient transport to definitive care. And all of these may be significantly compromised in low-income settings. Overlaid on this, I've summarised some drivers of outcomes, patient factors in yellow, healthcare factors in green and pathogen factors in red. I've highlighted three boxes which have black borders, which hypothesize are very different in low income settings in Africa. Firstly, patient status, including age and comorbidities. Secondly, the limitations of existing healthcare interactions and provision. And thirdly, the causative pathogen, pathogen load, and antimicrobial resistance patterns, which were discussed earlier this morning. Lastly, I've highlighted here some of the inherent assumptions that we're trying to unpick with our study, underlying the drivers of poor long-term outcome. Number one, it matters where you start. So pre-illness functional status is profoundly important. Two, the trajectory of illness. They're including an indolent infection, which may in some ways explain variable outcomes. Three, the quality of hospital care should and does make a positive difference to morbidity and mortality. Four, in the context of immediate sequelae, explanations include misdiagnosis, the direct effects of sepsis on physiology and pathology, and the possibility uh, that hospital admission could be detrimental through a number of mechanisms, including nosocomial infection. And five, although poor outcomes might sometimes be seen as inevitable based on a pre-existing functional impairment, they more likely result from new or accelerated comorbidities. I'm going to skip this slide and move on to a slide which shows <coughs> systematic review from high-income countries on the left, showing a patient population with sepsis dominated by older ages. Comorbidities are common, typically high rates of ischemic heart disease, diabetes, malignancy. In this setting and in a healthcare environment set up for intensive care, hospital mortality approximates 
Among older individuals, rehospitalization over three months occurs in 12%, most frequently a repeat sepsis episode, and on more and slightly less frequency, but most commonly in when non-sepsis related, a heart failure exacerbation. Commonly, new functional impairments are apparent, as are symptoms of anxiety, inattention, confusion, and physical weakness. On the right-hand side of this, a recent meta-analysis of 15 sepsis studies from sub-Saharan Africa gives no clue as to the outcomes beyond 30 days, but did demonstrate patient populations with high rates of HIV and hospital mortality around the same level as high-income countries. Over the last two years, therefore, we've worked in three main sites in Malawi, Uganda and Gabon. We've prospectively recruited adult patients who present to hospitals in these three countries. There's therefore a likelihood of pre-selection of possible survivor bias, even at the early stage, even at arrival to hospital. Inclusion criteria for this cohort are broad and pragmatic. We've defined sepsis as the need for hospital admission with the physician suspecting infection. We've excluded surgical obstetric trauma patients, which are seen in other cohorts. I'm going to now present some data. This comes with a warning. This is an interim analysis. I'm going to show you the available data from Uganda, 344 patients, and Malawi, 502, approximately two-thirds of the way through our uh, data completion. And they, these data have therefore not been peer-reviewed. But I show you them because I think they are some, uh, uh, there's very few data anywhere else. Um, Strikingly, there's a young population. The mean age is around 40. Frequent HIV infection and most obvious in Malawi, where inpatient rates are 40 to 50 percent. Approximately half the patients are unable to walk independently at the time of admission. There are some differences in presenting physiology between the Uganda and Malawi cohorts at present, but the following data I've combined both sites and I'll show you these now. Firstly, this graph shows how long patients have been unwell before presentation to hospital. Look at the lines which show the cumulative proportions. The arrow shows that 18% of people have been unwell for more than 30 days and 4% have been immobile for that time. Most people have suffered the presenting illness for more than one week uh, and delays include prior healthcare seeking at health centres in about 64%, uh, private facilities and pharmacy slightly less commonly. In addition, though, delays introduced due to a lack of awareness of disease severity, and in 22% of our participants, insufficient money to get to hospital. I'm now going to show you some outcomes to 90 days from the combined cohort and up to one year, which we have available for the Malawi cohort. These are displayed as Kaplan-Meier curves. And firstly, you can see that the Malawi in purple and Uganda cohorts in blue are relatively similar with approximately a 23% mortality at 90 days. I'm going to show you, take you on a whistle tour, uh, whistle stop tour of survival stratified by putative factors of poor outcomes. And firstly, HIV status. As expected, those with recently diagnosed HIV who are antiretroviral naive perform the worst, and those with negative or unknown statuses are much better off. These patterns are seen out to one year in Malawi the panel on the right, where ART naive individuals have a survival rate close to 50%. There is a uh, pattern with positive blood cultures. Here I've shown only the Malawi cohorts, as this is the only data we have currently. 
Other research has suggested that better outcomes where the etiology is known, but a positive blood culture infers, infers a poorer prognosis amongst our patients. The blood pressure on admission is unsurprisingly uh, uh, feeds forward into survival. Uh, those with hypotension in this graph, the purple line, have a worse prognosis. Surprisingly, perhaps there's no clear divergence in the early days following admission, which might be the expected thing. But the survival deficit does become increasingly apparent and persists at one year, as you can see on the right. Also, as expected, hypoxemia is associated with death and early death. Although I should highlight that both the availability and awareness of oxygen supplementation has changed massively in the last year, uh, and that our cohort spans both the pre- and peri-COVID eras, which may make some of our analysis more difficult in the future. Lastly, in this format, uh, stratifying the patient population according to their pre-hospital delay suggests very strongly that those with extended illness periods, and here the yellow line has been unwell for more than one month have relatively poor outcomes and a pattern is unchanged at one year. The last slide I'm going to show you is symptoms. We symptomatically, sorry, systematically follow up patients at one, three, six and 12 months. Briefly, the panels here show symptoms left to right of fever, myalgia, confusion, headache and poor concentration. And the patient is asked at each time point, did you suffer these in the last two weeks? Let me just point out the waning uh, rates of fever and myalgia to low levels after presentation, as might be expected. Confusion is not present at one year, one month or beyond that. And poor concentration was reported at a very low rate throughout. The lack of a control group here does limit some of the interpretation, but we hope to be able to present these data a little later. I hope that gives you an overview of some of the data we've collected to answer the immense knowledge gap surrounding what happens beyond short-term outcomes of sepsis in Africa. Specific questions which arise for our group are shown surrounding the graph here. What's the incidence of sepsis? What drives the different outcomes? And we've spoken about HIV, TB and non-communicable disease, particularly where there are very high rates of hypertension and diabetes across the continent, at least in pockets. How do we maximise the care quality in hospital? What improvements can we make? And how do we bring patient perspectives to the acute care of policymakers? And lastly, what can we do about post-discharge needs? Do we need to? Is there a role for rehabilitation or surveillance for late effects or missed opportunities? I'd like to thank again the massive number of people that have contributed to these efforts across the ARCS Consortium to support from the funder NIHR and the Wellcome Trust. And also very many thanks to the participants and guardians involved in the research. Thank you. Excellent. Thank you so much, Dr. Rylance. Um, very eye-opening um, information and sharing. Um, one uh, follow-up question from, um, because these patients have such a high morbidity and mortality um, once they arrive um, with their illness, from a prevention standpoint, how important um, um, are strategies for disease awareness um, prior to... The, prior to these individuals coming in and even after um, when they're on their way out of the institution? Um, and how are these addressed locally or on a national level with uh, by the healthcare entities there? 
Yeah, that's a great question. Thank you. And I think some of the data on the pre-hospital delay speaks to that, that at least some of our patients tend to stay at home for whatever reason, for protracted periods before presenting to hospital. We should be able to show whether this is because they, they don't have faith in the hospital system or whether it's that they are unable. And some of these data show that they're unable financially or otherwise to make that trip. There is certainly an educational component which might be able to sensitise people with sepsis or, or other acute disease to seek healthcare treat, treatment earlier. But we also know that data I didn't show you that approximately 60% of our cohort in Malawi have already been to a health centre. So it's not just the patient recognition, but it's the recognition at the primary care and the first responder type level. And certainly we're working on educational perspectives for that. Of course, in the grand scheme of things, although sepsis is very, very common, uh, it's not that frequent at the village level. And so educational uh, um things that focus just on sepsis are unlikely to have a very broad benefit. So we're trying to get the balance right of working out what the emergency uh, signs are, how people can be sensitised to look out for them and to facilitate that transport to hospital. Excellent. Thank you. Uh, one quick follow-up on that. What are What's the similar um, response for maybe improving pre-hospital health status? Uh, what's being done um, at the village level, um, so that when they're coming in, they're not already at a disadvantage. Yes, I think we heard, particularly in the, in the pediatric uh, presentations earlier, nutritional status uh, is important. Uh, certainly for us, HIV status is important. I showed you that antiretroviral naive patients do so much worse. So I think it's a broadly, uh, how do we improve the economic lot at, at the national level, but then specifically groups at risk and amongst those in adults, certainly those with HIV and in pediatric populations with uh, uh, vertically acquired HIV, there's a key opportunity to maximise their immunity and maximise their outcomes if they do develop sepsis. Absolutely makes great sense. Um, thank you so much for um, an amazing talk. And um, we'll move on to our next speaker. Um, I'm happy to introduce Dr. Timothy Buckman, who has four decades of bedside experience caring for septic patients. He's a general surgeon, intensive care doctor, and a virologist. He's currently senior advisor um, IPA to the Division of Research, Innovation, and Ventures, Biomedical Advanced Research and Development Authority, Office of Assistant Secretary for Preparedness and Response at the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Dr. Buckman's um, other current roles, because he has a lot of other time apparently, <laughs> um, include Professor of Surgery, Anesthesiology, and Biomedical Informatics at Emory University, where he founded the Emory Critical Care Center. Dr. Buckman is past president of the Shock Society, of the Society for Complex Acute Illness, and of the Society of Critical Care Medicine. He's Editor-in-Chief of Critical Care Medicine and Critical Care Explorations. Dr. Buckman's current research focuses on the use of artificial intelligence to predict which patients in the ICU will become septic. Um, Dr. Buckman's talk today is titled Societal Costs of Surviving Sepsis, Healthcare System and Out-of-Pocket. We welcome Dr. Buckman to the floor. Hello, it's a privilege to be here today. The opinions expressed in this talk are personal and may not reflect the position of the journals or of the Society of Critical Care Medicine. 
The opinions expressed today are personal and do not reflect the positions of the United States government or agencies thereof. The basis for this talk are three manuscripts published in the journal Critical Care and Medicine and presented as late breaker articles at the 2020 uh, Congress of that society. Uh, the uh, trilogy is entitled The Burdens of Sepsis, The Trajectories of Sepsis, and the Methods, Models, and Forecasts of Sepsis. By way of background, according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention in the United States, there are 1.7 million adult cases and 0.27 million deaths each year. Globally, based on the Rudd paper, the global burden was about 49 million total cases and about 11 million total deaths. Uh, these data published uh, in 2020. Who are the at-risk populations, according to the United States Center for Disease Control? In particular, they're adults 65 years of age or older, people with weakened immune systems, those with chronic conditions such as diabetes, lung disease, cancer, and kidney disease, and then, yes, children. Our focus today, though, is going to be on the adult population and those with chronic conditions. Why? because those are the patients who are covered by the U.S. Uh, Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services, that is the United States Insurance Program uh, for caring for those individuals. And this was a healthcare quality improvement study undertaken by BARDA and CMS. Our focus was to evaluate the burden of sepsis in this population, to estimate contemporary national sepsis costs, and to forecast future Medicare costs for sepsis care. Again, this is a federal health insurance for those greater than 65, some younger people with disabilities and people with end-stage renal disease. Generally speaking, CMS accounts and the Medicare program accounts for more than 21% of U.S. total health care costs, which is six times greater than the largest private payer. Our beneficiaries can select either fee-for-service, that is a traditional payment program, or Medicare Advantage, uh, which is an HMO-type plan. The Medicare population is increasing. It increased 22% from 2012 to 2018, and the projected growth is from around 60 million in 2018 to more than 80 million uh, by the end of this decade. Now, the data that we're reporting involves just under 9.6 million total sepsis inpatient admissions, including acute long-term psychiatric and rehabilitation patients. Uh, the split on fee-for-service and Medicare Advantage is as shown. And we'll be talking about 6.7 million acute hospital sepsis admissions and a about a quarter of a million other inpatient hospital sepsis admissions. Importantly, we'll be speaking about sepsis present on admission and sepsis that's acquired in the hospital. The data set spanned the United States transition from ICD-9 to ICD-10, and the cases were stratified according to standard ICD coding, uh, as shown on the right. At the left, you can see the significant steady rise in hospital admission rates uh, that were coded for sepsis, you can see that this rose from about 0.2% at any given time of the total number of enrolled beneficiaries to close to 0.3% by the end of the study interval. 
We notice that the sepsis claims increase steadily uh, per capita, uh, even as the Medicare beneficiary total population increased. So that in 2012, there were just over 770,000 Medicare sepsis admissions. And by the end of the study period in 2018, it was over 1.1 million. As you can see in the diagram, the non-severe sepsis cases far outpaced uh, those that had septic shock and severe sepsis. There is seasonal variation observed during the winter months that in the United States is the uh, roughly December through February period. The question always comes up, is this a coding problem or is this an illness problem? On the right, I've reproduced the information showing septic shock in aqua, severe sepsis in purple, and then the various non-sepsis uh, codes in green and red. On the left, I've broken them down into proportions. And the point is, is that from the beginning to the end of the study, if we look at the most severe forms of sepsis, that is septic shock and severe sepsis, these are unmistakable diagnoses. The proportion of the total remained constant. So if that was a coding problem, we might expect a disproportionate fall in those numbers. We did not see it. We do not think this was a coding problem. We noticed there was a rise seen in admissions exclusively in the present on admission group, the increased fraction from 87% at the beginning of the study to, 97, to 93% uh, by the end of the study in 2018. And again, there was a reciprocal fall in the hospital-acquired sepsis shown in the diagram in red. The mortality trends were favorable. Sepsis mortality did reflect sepsis severity, and that mortality accumulated over one week, six months, one year, and three years. That mortality did decrease in the seven-year period. Non-sepsis mortality at the same interval had no change, suggesting that sepsis diagnosis is, uh, and treatment is effective. Nevertheless, there is still a very high three-year mortality, 75% for septic shock, 60% for non-severe sepsis, uh, and 40% for the undiagnosed organisms. Now, what about the economic burdens of sepsis? In 2016, uh, Torio and Moore reported the 2013 costs reported for the entire United States for the inpatient diagnosis of septicemia as $23.7 billion. That year, it was the most expensive condition treated, and the Medicare population accounted for $14.6 billion, 61.5% of cost. Now, in fact, the cost per case had declined somewhat and then appeared to plateau a bit in the calendar years uh, 16, 17, and 18. The average claim in 2012 uh, was about uh, $21,900, a very expensive cost. When we add those costs in to the costs of sepsis uh, for patients transferred to skilled nursing facilities, we begin to get a total picture of the 2018 Medicare sepsis spend. 
On the left are the inpatient costs in blue fee for service in green Medicare Advantage. Those totaled about $33.3 billion. The skilled nursing facility costs required for patients who required ongoing nursing care, uh, unable to go home after their hospitalization. Again, these are just Medicare beneficiaries, more than $8 billion, totaling $41.5 million. If we projected forward into 2019, those costs were up to more than $44 billion. And if we project forward, if we actually look at those costs, the actual costs were higher still, approaching $44.3 billion. Now, again, those are just the Medicare beneficiaries. And we can back calculate from the fraction of Americans who are non-Medicare beneficiaries, but who still became septic. And we estimate that the inpatient costs alone in 2018 and 19 would approach 53 billion US dollars. But that's not the only cost that we should be measuring. We have to ask, where are these patients six months after discharge? On the left, the sepsis patients. On right, other hospitalized patients who did not carry a sepsis diagnosis. And you can see by comparing the data that the sepsis patients, fewer of them went home, more went to a nursing home, more went to a skilled nursing facility. Nearly a third died six months later. 1.8% were preparing to die in hospice and 1.2% were back in the hospital. If we ask if the patient had to go from the hospital to a skilled nursing facility first, did they fare better or worse? And unfortunately, they fared worse. On the left, the sepsis cases. On the right, non-sepsis admissions. Fewer patients went home. More went to a nursing home. More went to an inpatient hospital. And an astounding fraction, uh, more than uh, a third, who went to a skilled nursing facility initially, ended up dying anyway, with 3% then in hospice getting ready to die. Now, these unfortunately are not the only costs because this calculation, these data did not consider the initial pre-hospital or outpatient care. They did not consider the professional, the physician fees during the inpatient or skilled nursing facility stays. It didn't consider the care of our nation's military veterans or those who are in active military service uh, through our VA and Defense Health Agency hospitals. It didn't consider uh, the costs of the skilled nursing facility uh, for the non-Medicare patients. And it didn't consider the costs of home care, of medical supplies, or the loss of productivity after the patients uh, had been successfully discharged to home. So we conclude that sepsis inpatient admissions are rising, uh, and they're rising at a rate almost double the Medicare beneficiary population growth as a whole. The inpatient mortality rates are coming down. The patients are doing better. But even so, a sepsis hospital admission is associated with a 60 to 75% mortality rate after three years at all severities. The cost per admission appeared to be declining, but may in fact now be leveling off. 
and the total cost burden to society is unknown, all we can say is it is massively underestimated. Thank you so much for the privilege of speaking today. Excellent. Thank you so much, Dr. Buckman. Very uh, overwhelming numbers that you've shared here um, just takes you uh, to to a point to understand, you know, how severe this is in the high middle, uh, high income countries. And um, it leads to our questions from the audience were um, quite a few about low middle income countries. I know that that was not part of uh, your presentation, but um, the questions were, um, how are some of these things that are so difficult to address in high income countries to be addressed in low resource countries that don't have all that expertise um, or the funding and resources um, that the high-income countries do. What are your thoughts on that? By far the best strategy to reduce costs is sepsis prevention. The investments that are made in public health, hygiene, vaccination, and so forth, as we have seen in the COVID era, uh, clearly are by far the better strategy, not only to reduce the immediate costs of sepsis, but also those longer term costs, both of aftercare, but most importantly, the loss of economic productivity. Thank you. Um, because these costs are so enormous, um, do you feel that there's an appropriate response from organizations in um, the U.S., for instance, like CMS, to try to mitigate this? And what is that response? What, what's their planning? What's their kind of outlook? I can't speak for CMS per se and for planning. I'm now speaking as an individual who's been looking at this situation for a very long time. The key to managing and reducing the costs and impact of sepsis when it occurs is early diagnosis and appropriate intervention. I speak now very generally to point out that so much of our sepsis diagnostic prior to COVID depended on technologies that were two centuries old. Culture, sensitivity, and treating in the blind, not knowing whether or not the patient is infected, seems to be a poor strategy in the age of molecular diagnostics. My view is that the strategy forward is going to be a different type of partnership among public health agencies, hospital laboratorians, and clinicians, so that we get the right test at the right time, so that we can give the right care right now to every patient every time. Wonderful. Uh, one last question. Um, do you know of collaborative work going on um, looking at the, these uh, findings of incidence determinants and outcomes um, with Sub-Saharan Africa in those areas? I'm not familiar with that area. Okay, wonderful. Thank you so much for this uh, wonderful talk. And we'll move on to our next speaker. I'm happy to introduce Dr. Ilya Zule. He's professor of medicine and head of the critical care department at St. Louis Hospital in Paris. He completed his training in pulmonology um, and critical care in 1996 and a PhD in respiratory physiology in 2002 on chemotherapy and GCSF related pulmonary toxicity. Um, he has been part of the editorial board of several international journals and the editor-in-chief of Intensive Care Medicine from 2012 to 
2018. His research interests have focused on critical care management of patients with hematologic malignancies and toxicity from chemotherapy and immunotherapy. He launched in 1996 the FAMIREA multicenter multidisciplinary study group aimed at improving the effectiveness of communication with family members um, of ICU patients. Dr. Azule has published more than 400 peer-reviewed articles and is the president-elect of the European Society of Intensive Care Medicine. Um, Dr. Azule's talk today is titled Caregivers Outcomes After Sepsis and COVID-19. I welcome Dr. Azule to the floor. Thank you very much, uh, Dr. Malik. Uh, I hope that uh, you can hear me well. It's a, a big privilege to share this session with you and uh, to speak after Dr. Buckman and uh, before uh, Dr. Herridge. And uh, within this session, we have plenty of uh, talents uh, of our uh, specialty worldwide. Um, and uh, I will have the privilege to present on healthcare providers' outcome during the pandemic. Clearly, we have now many experiences and many feedback from colleagues, uh, nurses, doctors, juniors, more senior people, and other elite healthcare professionals saying that they are exhausted. There are many experiences where people can share their pictures, can share words. Um, overall, our commitment is to understand what is going there to make maybe a kind of diagnosis and maybe to be helped by specialists um, and to try to make everything to reverse what we observe. Clearly, when we give voice to frontline healthcare workers, we can see that there are many words on uh, different things like solidarity and support from, the, the, from different colleagues. But also when you look at the small words, you can see that there are tensions, there are conflicts, there is exhaustion, and there are many different symptoms um, like anxiety, depression, stress, um, and many conditions um, that are maybe symptoms, but maybe the start of um, more structural disease uh, and mental healthcare issues. Clearly, it's time now to care for the caregivers uh, not after, but at the same time, we have to care for COVID-19 patients and family members and uh, the society overall. What we can uh, understand, and this is a very nice uh, a contribution from Dr. Meta and Dr. Herridge uh, from Toronto, to which I was privileged to take part, uh, where clearly, because of the surging demand, the fear and many other symptoms uh, and facing death, facing very difficult conditions, facing irreversibility, but sometimes facing uncertainty, we are uh, in a situation where we develop many different symptoms. These symptoms can be either insidious or sometimes be voiced by the colleagues. Uh, and we only need to listen, but also to look at people to better understand the clinical situation. So I would like to take this framework and to start by reporting on how was the critical care environment before the pandemic. Clearly, sometimes treatments are taking so much space that we don't see the patients behind the machines. And this is a classic criticism that we can get from uh, nurses and sometimes junior doctors. Also clearly, 
we know that patients are, uh, the nurses are more into the rooms than the doctors uh, because we have as doctors more patients than nurses. And one of the criticism that has some strong uh, uh, grounds, but also uh, can be discussed all the time is that we are leaving the room without addressing all the problems. Uh, we have certainly addressed the medical issues, but none the qualitative issues and how people are doing. The patients, of course, the family members, but also the entire interprofessional team. When we looked at the prevalence of conflicts in our ICUs, we were surprised uh, uh, 20 years ago to see that uh, more than 70% of the, uh, the clinicians were reporting ICU conflicts. Uh, and these ICU conflicts were much related to strain, which is a surrogate marker of burnout. This is another study that was performed also on the behalf of the European Society of Intensive Care Medicine, where a number of ICUs, 82 ICUs in nine countries, reported on the perception of inappropriate care. And COVID-19 is an exacerbation of something that existed already. And this perception is clearly associated with the intention to leave the ICU, but also with many different symptoms. One can be voiced as moral distress for which a definition is quite difficult to get, but other may describe uh, things like burnout syndrome, and symptoms of stress and dissociation that clinicians can present when they are facing this perception of inappropriate care. Of course, it's mostly excessive care, much than uh, not enough care at a patient level. When we are interested by the nurses and when we look at how nurses cope with the stress of managing patients, and this was much before uh, the, 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 the pandemic. Uh, this is a, a wonderful contribution by the group of Mark Moss, uh, where they reported on post-traumatic stress disorder in nurses. So everyone can understand that the post-ICU syndrome in patients and family members includes PTSD. But this was one of the first descriptions of PTSD in ICU nurses. And clearly you can see that the traumatic events are numerous uh, and not only include patient's care, but also post-mortem care. And I think that this is a very important study that describes how and, and offers opportunities to improve the way we are doing critical care at a global level and improve the experience of our colleagues uh, when we are uh, uh, providing care for patients um, in the ICU. Many different situations, exhaustion, depression, general anxiety, PTSD, post uh, perception of inappropriate care and moral distress. So these different symptoms have actually the same determinants. Uh, they are about communication gaps. They are about behaviors. They are about decision-making, about family grief, about the strain, and about the, the, the working hours. Clearly, we are lost into symptoms and syndromes. Uh, but overall, when you take one of these different uh, uh, domains, you can see that the determinants are the same. So providing burden might lead to different symptoms. But trying to reverse and offering opportunities for improvement actually might have the same targets.
when we look at burnout, you can you know that no one will come to you to complain for burnout. You, as an ICU leader, need to understand the symptoms of burnout, need to understand the exhaustion, the depersonalization, so you don't recognize your colleague who is different, uh, and uh, the reduced personal accomplishment at work. Uh, and we know that we need to understand this feeling of burnout, these different elements, uh, these quotes that might come from colleagues uh, that include, for example, cynicism or sometimes expectations that are not at odds with the situation and then get to this very high prevalence of, bur of burnout uh, that existed before the COVID-19 and, of course, are increased and exacerbated with the pandemic because of the surge, because of the uh, difficult situation, because of the uncertainty, but also because of the social conditions and the, the different things. This is one of the last papers that was before the COVID-19 pandemic uh, and clearly provided um, psychological burden on healthcare providers. And clearly we can see in this paper that before the COVID-19, prevalence of, of burnout was almost 50% in nurses and doctors. COVID-19 has brought additional strain and additional stress and sources of burden on the healthcare providers. Clearly, we are all living in uh, an area of uh, quarantine and the lockdown has deprived everyone from any social compensation of what we live. Also clearly, when we look at the frontline healthcare providers outside the ICU, you can see that the prevalence of anxiety and depression are almost 20% and insomnia is reaching almost 40% of the cases. So our colleagues, ourselves, are really into a situation where even outside the ICU, things are very, very uh, uh, complex. When we are getting inside the ICUs with the frontline nurses, we see that uh, burnout can lead uh, reach uh, 50% of prevalence. Uh, and we know that there are variations uh, uh, across countries, um, maybe because of the very heterogeneous uh, 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 effect of the, the pandemic uh, at a global level, but also maybe because the, the, the ethical climate uh, or maybe sometimes the way the decisions are made and the relationship with patients and family members may be very different. For example, restrictions in visiting hours that have been recommended in the hospitals during the, the pandemic might have been uh, observed very differently from one country to the other. And we know that clinicians facing uh, the, the ICU without family members have been very much uh, 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 concerned and affected by this burden. Again, when we are measuring, this is the first paper coming from China showing that symptoms of depression were 50%, anxiety 45%, insomnia 34%, so much more than outside the ICU. And when we looked at this data in France in 21 ICUs, we had exactly the same prevalence of symptoms, 50% anxiety and 30% depression. And as we were in the first wave, we, not, we did not measure PTSD or burnout. We did measure a peritraumatic dissociation, which is an acute uh, complication of acute stress disorder. Clearly, when we look at these symptoms, we also are able to identify modifiable 
determinants of uh, these uh, symptoms like fear. We know that clinicians face the fear of being infected or infected family members, the inability to rest, inability to care for family, the difficult emotions, uh, the restricted visitation policies, um, and the hasty end-of-life decisions. So perception of suboptimal decision-making has been one of the major determinants of this burden. And excessive care, or at least some dispropriate care, has also been a major determinant of mental health symptoms in clinicians. So clearly, we are at a time for action. We need to target ICU professionals and family and friends because we know that people we live with need also to understand the situation of healthcare providers because they are themselves affected. They are one of the major collateral damage. And we know that family members of caregivers, of ICU caregivers, of ICU healthcare providers are themselves affected. We need to have a call for action towards ICU leaders, nurses, medical doctors, and other administrators. And we need to target many different levels to hope for improvements. Clearly, we need to deal with burnout, to recognize it, knowing what are the feelings, to reverse it, and to build resilience with our teams. What we can do is one of the very simple thing we can do is to report about it, to speak about it, to listen to colleagues and to have support groups. There are some uh, cognitive uh, uh, management, CBT management uh, that has provided some information, but at this time, these are only hypotheses. We can try mindfulness uh, and we are convinced based on uh, preliminary, preliminary results uh, that it is effective, um, but we need more evidence. Uh, we can also improve communication within the teams because we know it is a very good way to decrease burnout symptoms uh, in healthcare providers. Um, we need to improve communication, cohesion, to promote well-being within the team as much as possible, to offer maybe naps in the ICU. Uh, we know that we also have uh, preventive measures and um, kind of isolation within uh, clinicians, but we need to do things and to have psychological support uh, from uh, uh, specialists and also from uh, colleagues. In the same way, we need to provide clinicians with things that are ready for them to use, uh, like, for example, to make recommendations about end-of-life care, to make recommendations about how we are going to lead a discussion with a remote family, how we can speak with them, and how we can improve the way we provide information to people who are not in the ICU because they are far, because they are themselves sick, or because they are uh, imposed restricted visiting uh, policies. And we also need to have guides to talk to relatives when we are facing the very difficult situation of end of life. At this stage, I would like to finish my presentation by saying that uh, I was very happy to share this session with you, but the strategy and the way we are, we are going to get out of this uh, is the same for all of us. Uh, and I also think that we as the critical care global community, we need to communicate more between us uh, and maybe to help each other to, to cope with this situation and to pass the situation of distress. Maybe if you have a good idea, we would be very happy to share it. Uh, and any good idea from our side would be also for you. Thank you very much. 
Excellent. Thank you so much. That um, certainly gives everyone more food for thought. Um, and um, the, it's being echoed in the chat. Um, people are certainly responding to what you're sharing, saying that it's a very important subject. It's a huge um, problem for our healthcare system. And, as, and, and people are sharing that up to 50% of their colleagues are suffering from this. It's very clear and obvious, even more so than it was before COVID. Um, and that nurses and other professionals um, on general wards are affected by this as well. I mean, it trickles down um, very clearly. Um, one uh, question that came up was, um, you know, in addition to the the awareness, um, cohesion, communication, everything that those methods that are that are helpful, is there anything in particular about our experience with COVID nineteen that's helping us highlight new methods of how we should be trying to address or manage some of the stress um, or the PTSD that healthcare workers are dealing with? That's a very good question because many things have been attempted uh, during this pandemic, uh, but I would say that it's still early to provide any any uh, concrete uh, recommendations. One of the things that is obvious is that there is a lot of frustration as we cannot be a real group uh, uh, with this cohesion is also limited by the need we have to to, to stay apart from each other because of the new variants. And even if we are all vaccinated, we may be you know, susceptible to new variants and we need to be able to avoid circulation of the virus inside the ICU. Still, there are a lot of things that have been done. Just for example, those clinicians who have had, you know, their pictures in the uh, among the PPE or their name, and the, you know, they have they have made some videos, uh, and just the way that the, the the feeling that they were really able to help family members and to help the patients past this very difficult tunnel and this very difficult moment uh, was very good for at, at the clinician level. So one of the frustration was also that they were not really able the best care for patients and for family members. So anything they can do to welcome family members or to do something to, you know, to, to, to bypass the frustration of the PPEs and the, fa the fact that you cannot recognize any clinician in the ICU is a good thing. The other thing is that all the, the things that we do to, to, to pass the burden is on Zoom. So we are not together, we see each other. So it mimics the real life. But by providing a solution that is Zoom-based is also a frustration because you cannot touch, you cannot share, you cannot really see uh, others. So we, we need to work on this. My recommendation is to take the entire team on projects that will be for after COVID. So it's taking everyone to a hope that makes that in a, a few months, we are going to go back to our normal life um, with the problem of the normal life, but with its strength. And we know that we together, we, not, we want to share, we want to discuss, we want to see each other, to smell each other, something we don't do anymore, and to be able really to, to, to maybe debrief them. Taking people in the future and giving them uh, the light of a, a close future where we will be again in a capacity of being together and maybe fighting again, but we will be again together is maybe a, a, a good thing uh, to, to think on. Absolutely. I think ha um, having a light at the end of the tunnel always helps. 
keep us going forward. Thank you so much for this wonderful talk. Um, I'm happy to now introduce our final speaker. Uh, Dr. Margaret Herridge is a professor of medicine, critical care, and pulmonary medicine at the University Health Network, senior scientist in the Toronto General Research Institute, and director of research for the Interdepartmental Division of Critical Care Medicine at University of Toronto. She completed her research training um, at the Channing Laboratory, Harvard School of Medicine Public Health. Um, pardon me, Harvard School of Public Health. Since 1997, her group has completed three cohort studies, one in survivors of ARDS, uh, one in survivors of SARS, one in patients with post-mechanical ventilation and their family caregivers. Currently, Dr. Herridge is co-leading the Canadian Perspective Multicenter one-year cohort study of COVID-19 patients and caregivers. She is director of the Recover Clinical and Research Program for Patient and Family-Centered follow-up care after critical illness, and clinical director of the long-term ventilation program, GRACE Recover Program for Chronic Critical Illness. Dr. Herridge has led editorials and manuscripts in the New England Journal of Medicine as a, and is a frequent international speaker on outcomes after critical illness. Her talk today is titled Long-Term Outcome of COVID-19, and I welcome Dr. Herridge to the floor. Thank you very much, uh, Dr. Malik, and uh, thanks uh, so much for the opportunity to speak to you today about long-term outcome of COVID-19. It's always a, a pleasure to follow uh, Ellie, and uh, thanks uh, to uh, all the speakers for wonderful talks this morning. I wanted to briefly say I have no conflicts of interest to declare, and I have no relationship with industry. I think when we think about the outcomes after COVID-19, it's very important to uh, address this in the construct of uh, uh, multi-organ dysfunction. This is something we're very familiar with in uh, critical illness in general, but the emerging COVID-19 literature helps to teach us about certain end organs that are targeted that are particularly relevant because they have a lot to do with functional outcome and our day-to-day -day life, including uh, injury to the brain, injury to our heart, uh, injury to our lungs, and the severe lung injury and ARDS that these patients uh, sustain, uh, renal injury, and uh, the complications of this. Furthermore, I think it's very uh, helpful to think about these constellation of uh, uh, challenges, these end organ challenges uh, using uh, the post-intensive care syndrome construct. Um, and this was uh, uh, led by Dale Needham and really helping to bring together the ICU outcomes literature for both patients and families uh, focused on mental health, uh, cognitive and um, uh, physical impairments. Recently, there's been um, uh, sort of an augment uh, to this original construct, the concept of an extended uh, PICS. Uh, this was uh, recently published in Critical Care, uh, led by uh, Russo and uh, other colleagues, to extend the uh, uh, PICS to include more uh, multi-dimensions uh, in terms of uh, patient outcome, and uh, also to endorse uh, the continuum of care who you are before you become critically ill has a lot to do with your long-term outcome, as well as the importance of the long-term outcome sequelae as determinants of long-term um, healthcare utilization, 
cost um, and uh, uh, these other challenges that uh, many of which uh, Dr. Buckman outlined in his talk. One additional construct that's important uh, that was not included in the original PICS definition is frailty. This is very, very nicely outlined in a recent paper in critical care medicine um, by uh, Nathan Buckman, uh, by uh, Nathan Brummel, pardon me. Our own uh, recover program has uh, attempted to highlight the multimorbidities here, um, uh, pressure injuries, intra-abdominal sepsis that can also uh, influence outcomes. So multimodality outcomes, when we're thinking about the brain, I think it's important to look at prior literature. And here's the landmark paper uh, published by uh, Mona Hopkins, uh, showing that uh, patients after uh, ARDS, and most of these patients were survivors of sepsis, they had decrements in processing speed, memory, executive function, uh, attention, and concentration. So to learn from the prior literature, including the prior sepsis literature and one of the uh, outcomes leaders in the sepsis literature, uh, Jack Awashina, uh, more recently, um, Hallie Prescott, and showing that uh, after sepsis, there are important uh, decrements in cognition, um, also shown in the uh, important New England Journal paper led here by Pradik Pandurapandi with West Ely, showing again important uh, decrements in survivors of critical illness uh, in cognition, uh, measured by the R-bands uh, cognitive scale on the order of mild Alzheimer type dementia and a moderate traumatic brain injury and across age tertiles. So we're seeing robust literature already showing cognition, but also in these data uh, published by Jim Jackson, uh, mood disorders, um, prevalent mood disorders across age tertiles uh, here um, showing depressive symptoms and also uh, symptoms of post-traumatic distress uh, uh, disorder. I show you this background, this historical background in the outcomes literature, uh, because I think looking at that uh, really helps to inform what we might anticipate in COVID-19, those similarities and exploring those differences that may be unique to this viral infection. Here's a, a very, uh, here's a seminal paper uh, led by Brenda Poon um, and showing how prevalent delirium is in uh, patients with COVID-19 and the important risks of, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, continuous sedation, uh, continuous exposure to narcotics, uh, the use of uh, physical restraints, um, and also important mitigating factors. Things that we know historically helped our patients uh, having a loved one, <coughs> excuse me, a loved one family member at the bedside and how now we've uh, completely uh, disrupted this opportunity to attenuate um, delirium uh, through the uh, isolation that our patients are currently experiencing. Um, our group and other groups around the world have looked a lot at outcomes after ARDS. Um, there's an outcomes literature in SARS as well. And the outcomes literature is important because again, it can inform uh, what we might expect to see in COVID-19 patients. Um, in uh, our uh, uh, Toronto ARDS cohort, we saw that patients had important functional disability captured as distance walked in six minutes, 
uh, in uh, the SARS uh, data as well, there was important functional disability. And interestingly, in survivors of severe ARDS and survivors of SARS, uh, there was normal to near normal uh, pulmonary function and pulmonary uh, function gradually improved over time. And the observation that in severe ARDS patients, thinking now about pulmonary outcomes that may be relevant to COVID-19, um, those pulmonary outcomes uh, and disability outcomes may not reach uh, pre-morbid functional levels. And in the ICAP cohort and other international cohorts, this cohort led by Elizabeth Foe and published in ICM shows not only decrements, but also uh, declines um, across different uh, functional domains over time. Well, as the outcomes literature begins to emerge uh, internationally, uh, we look first to China um, and their experience, and we will begin to publish outcomes uh, literature moving east to west. And this is an important cohort study led by Bin Cao um, uh, from uh, the Wuhan uh, group showing six-month data now and re reinforcing um, some of the outcomes that we've seen previously published in the sepsis literature, in the ARDS literature. High uh, uh, prevalence of symptoms, and you can see here um, fatigue and muscle weakness, uh, sleep difficulties, alopecia, very important symptoms uh, that are being reported. I would say also 60-day um, uh, outcomes uh, published uh, recently the Annals of Internal Medicine by Hallie Prescott's group uh, endorsed uh, very similar outcomes. So we're seeing these robust themes emerging. In Bin Cow's cohort, you can see that at six months, uh, there is still, still some degree of pulmonary dysfunction um, with a reduction in lung volumes. One might expect, if this is similar to the arts literature, that these will continue to improve over time. It's important to note as well that the CT findings of ground glass opacifications that are virtually ubiquitous um, uh, are still quite prevalent at six months. And again, based in the SARS literature and the historic ARDS literature, we might expect that these would resolve over time and we will follow these uh, results carefully. In another important uh, uh, cohort group uh, from the uh, uh, comeback study, showing their four-month uh, clinical status outcomes. I think it's important here to uh, re reinforce as well that um, uh, as shown in the previous sepsis and, and ARDS literature, there's an important signal in uh, psychiatric symptoms um, and cognitive impairment, and similarly with dysfunctional breathing. As we move forward, uh, there are many groups. Uh, Dr. Tong has led uh, one of these groups and this is a very nice publication in critical care medicine recently, um, bringing together um, experts to determine um, core outcome sets so that we can really capture the complexity, the multidimensionality of outcomes after COVID-19 for patients uh, for caregivers, um, as Ellie um, alluded to, both professional and family caregivers. So I'm just going to close um, uh, by saying that um, COVID-19, uh, the early emerging literature definitely seems to share many of, this, of uh, the similar uh, 
robust themes that we've already seen emerging over 20 years or so in the outcomes literature, in sepsis, in ARDS, that there is newly acquired disability or exacerbation of pre-existing disability or comorbidities or vulnerabilities. And this may lead to uh, an important uh, public health, uh, uh, really tsunami of age inappropriate healthcare resource use and the um, uh, importance of really evaluating the uh, health policy implications of these long-term healthcare needs to really address the sequelae of multi-system injury, the sequelae of prolonged critical illness for these patients, the sequelae of specific elements of COVID-19 that we may still need to understand, traumatized family caregivers, and really um, uh, understanding how to modify our systems around the world, which currently are really not prepared to meet these longitudinal healthcare needs. I thank you very much again for the opportunity to speak today and I look forward to uh, chatting further. Thank you. Thank you so much, Dr. Harich. Um, wonderful talk and so much to consider um, given that we're just seeing the beginnings of this data. You know, mm -hmm. we're getting in at just the tip of the iceberg of what's kind of coming ahead. Knowing that, knowing that we are perhaps very inadequately prepared, what are some of the strategies that um, different uh, organizations are uh, planning or thinking about um, to try to be prepared for this or at least have a, a chance at it? Well, you know, uh, thanks for that wonderful question. Um, I, think, I think we really need to make sure that we don't try to reinvent the wheel. I, I think I, I tried to show a lot of the prior outcomes data from many international groups to emphasize that we already know a lot about the sequelae of, at least speaking in the context of critical illness, um, about the long-term disability. Um, I think as a community, um, as an outcomes community, we're still struggling a little bit um, uh, to know precisely what to do about that. But definitely understanding uh, potential mitigating factors, and, and Brenda Poon's paper is very instructive in that way. In real time, understanding how we've really um, largely departed from a lot of the, the tenets of, of uh, uh, critical care that we know helped outcome, like um, having patients awake in the ICU, um, not in deep coma. Um, physical contact with patients uh, from caregivers, from um, uh, family members, and truly trying to implement um, early mobility. Uh, many groups uh, have published extensively on this and really creating a continuum of care for rehab um, to address not only the uh, ICU-acquired weakness sequelae, but also importantly, the mental health and uh, cognitive issues. Many of the leaders whose work I've, I've briefly cited today are actively engaged in that, but really to understand what we already know um, are robust challenges after critical illness, and then adding to that what might be more specifically related uh, to COVID-19. You know, are there more, is there more cognitive overlay uh, in these folks because of the ACE2 receptor uh, expression in the brain in particular? Um, uh, just as one example. So I think my message would be important to 
learn from the past, modify from modify what we already know and extend that knowledge uh, into what might be more specifically uh, related to COVID-19. Thank you. Um, do you feel that because this pandemic has really grabbed everybody's attention and um, there has been a lot of, um, a lot more efforts to putting resources behind uh, the various um, treatment methods, um, prevention, and uh, and now, uh, you know, what we're talking about in terms of sequelae, uh, do you mm -hmm. feel that uh, hopeful that there'll be a lot more resources put towards this as well as we go forward? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I really think so. I, I feel um, optimistic about that. I feel, um, and I'm sure many people who study outcomes, one silver lining to what's been an extraordinarily difficult time in so many ways is that never in the history of the world have there been so many survivors of critical illness or sepsis. Um, and in, in such a public way, you know, that, that everyone understands now what ventilators are and what proning is. And I mean, it's, it's rather extraordinary, but I think it, it allows us an opportunity, a window in time to advocate for patients, for families, to advocate for system change, to advocate for health policy change, that we can really address a lot of um, a lot of needs that have largely gone unmet um, across our different healthcare systems to really openly talk about how um, healthcare systems are different, how access is different for uh, people of different um, economic advantage, how it's different for racialized groups, regardless of the country you live in. And even in uh, uh, a country like Canada, where we have universal access, there is still differential access for many, many people. And it, it, this is a, a great opportunity to have a very um, hard look, a very sobering look at what we're doing and how we're really meeting needs because it is so public what we're having to deal with, I, I think it's a great opportunity for change to these things are, are being really laid, uh, laid bare, made transparent to the, to the larger public uh, because of the media attention and the disruption. Absolutely. And I really hope that we can uh, capitalize on that tension um, the, with, from media, from the public, and all the resources that are being put towards it to make sure that we're addressing the whole spectrum of this disease from mm. the beginning to the, what, what we're doing in the, in the hospitalization to what's happening to them at home. Mm. So thank you so very much for this wonderful talk. Um, and, now, and now, as we conclude this session, I would like to thank our wonderful speakers for helping us better understand these various important aspects of the long-term sequelae for our patients, as well as healthcare workers from sepsis and COVID-19. I wanna thank our audience members and encourage them to visit the Global Sepsis Alliance website, sign the World Sepsis Declaration and follow GSA on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for details regarding the availability of the talks from this session on YouTube coming out soon. And also looking for our future um, Congress dates in 2022. I want to thank you very much um, for sharing this time with us and, um, and uh, encourage everyone to um, continue the conversation 
about long-term sequelae and everyone be safe. Thank you. Thanks for listening. And thanks to everybody who helped putting World Sepsis Congress 2021 together. Session 9, the panel discussion with families and survivors of sepsis and COVID-19 will be available in a couple of minutes, and Session 10 and 11 will follow on June 1st.